You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. This is episode two in a mini-series around the pandemic in focus. So in this episode, we're going to talk to Alec Wilding, who is an advanced paramedic practitioner, and just get his insights into the uh, second wave of the pandemic. So I found this a really insightful conversation from many angles, but um, it's really fantastic just to get Alec's perspective. Um, He tells a few anecdotal experiences as well, just to highlight some of his points. But yeah, um, please do enjoy this uh, second part in a four-part mini-series of the Pandemic in Focus. Upcoming next week uh, will be um, an episode with the GP, and then we'll also speak to a charge nurse after that. So uh, please do enjoy and please do leave us feedback. Many thanks. In 2018, I became one of the um, advanced paramedic practitioners in critical care. So I'm one of the newer um, APPs in critical care, if you like. Um, Although there's a new cohort now, so I'm no longer one of the newest, um, but still feel very, very sort of new into the role. Although I don't know how it's been two years already. It's gone really quick. Um, And... Um, and yeah, and then obviously here we are, 2021. Um, and yeah, and what a year it was last year. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So very much, um, Alec, you used to you, you still do the role that I used to do, the critical care role, and um, very much seeing at hospital cardiac arrest, trauma, and, and medical. Uh, but I just want what I just wanted to do from your perspective, Alec, really is look at the second wave of. COVID-19 versus the first wave and just just reflecting back from your perspective how different is the second wave versus your your own personal experience of the first wave yeah well so um (laughs) it's very busy is probably the uh, understatement of the decade um so I guess really to sort of try and draw a comparison the first wave and and you'll know this because you were here then um the first wave kind of was unfolding faster than anybody could really comprehend i think um you know there was this there was this virus in china and um i I worked in the clinical support desk a few years ago i know you did as well and um we were doing all the risk assessments for um, ebola when all that was going on um and when when this all started i guess i kind of drew a lot of comparisons with, with that and it kind of felt like something that and I know I've heard a lot of other people say that we um, dodged a bit of a bullet with some of the the other sort of viruses that have been, like Ebola, for example. Um, and um, during the first wave, there was just a sort of a general feeling of when it really started to get busy, that it was almost a, a sort of a, a disbelief that it was actually happening. Um, sort of generally amongst a lot of people at work and a lot of friends. And I remember working that first weekend, the weekend before the first lockdown. And um, <clears throat> you kind of had half of London were um, sort of, you know, planning their escape and, you know, had all their sort of their go bags and everything and were, you know, it was the end of the world. Um, and the other half of London were all at the pub, <laughs> having a few drinks and, and, you know, and all the usual carnage that you get from being a critical care paramedic in London on weekend nights. Um, and it was really, really split. People didn't really know how to, how to sort of react to what the right way was. And then, and I think that's probably quite reflective actually of the lockdown because during the first lockdown, there was really nobody out on the streets. It was, it was empty. It was like a ghost town. And, um, and then I guess that brings us to, 
to now we had that really nice lull over the summer where people thought things were going to you know hopefully start to return to normal a little bit <clears throat> but i think people that worked in medicine and healthcare scientists if you listen to all of the conversations that were going on um i think everyone was very aware that we were going to have a second wave and it was going to be significantly worse than the first one certainly that was a lot of the a lot of people saying weren't they i don't think anyone could have necessarily anticipated this new variant being quite as sort of transmissible um as it has been but certainly when it started getting busy over december all of a sudden everyone realized that this thing that everyone had been talking about this event that you know we were all kind of preparing ourselves for was very much here and yeah the last few weeks um you know i think if anyone anyone that works especially for the ambulance service or, you know for the nhs has you know turned around and said it's it's been you know it's been okay sort of thing they've probably not been completely honest with with themselves or the person they're talking to because it has been it's been really really hard and you know a lot of people have struggled and i think um you know off the back of this there's going to be an awful lot of work um doing the sort of stuff you're doing you know having these conversations and um supporting people um in their mental health yeah indeed indeed so you make some really good points there alec and i think the first one i'd like to dip into really is 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 the well-being of of, of the of, of the people and then just look at the well-being of the staff group as well because i think it's like you said massively taking a toll on both but um, just looking first at the sort of the population of, and the general health of, of the people that 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 you and I uh, were serving and you do serve. Um, what signs of cumulative stress have you seen within the population? I mean, have you seen a, an increase in prevalence of, of mental health? Have you um, I, I, and also the second sort of part of that question would be why has why has there been a cumulative increase if, if indeed there has? All throughout the year, I've regularly had people, you know, friends, members of the public, neighbours, knowing that I do the job that I do, coming up to me and asking asking me how I am. And I always kind of think it's quite funny because, well, you know, it's, it's really, really nice, you know. And the people, when they ask, they're sort of, they're, they're trying to start that conversation of like, you know, how, how are you coping? Because it must be really difficult doing your job. And I kind of think, do you know what? <laughs> Actually, like, how are you? Like, how are you doing? Because... I feel in a lot of ways my job hasn't you know our job hasn't really changed an awful lot like obviously it has but I feel very lucky in a lot of ways that I've still been able to you know go to work be surrounded by colleagues that I know do the job that that you know I, I love doing and um you know really really enjoying at a, at a time when you know I feel like it's I've got a lot of sense of purpose and stuff like that you know um and then, you know, I'm being asked this question by perhaps someone who I know is a single parent who lives in a flat with three kids. And I'm like, you know, I guess the point I'm trying to make is everybody has had a really, really tough year, haven't they? And, um, you know, no doubt it's been it's been challenging for us in that sense. But I think especially working critical care, I think, you know, you when you go through the selection process and everything else, they're kind of they're very much looking for that person who's got that mental resilience. Um able to cope under pressure and you know perhaps have a, a you know a wider understanding of some of the challenges I think when you come into being a paramedic you sort of you can be quite an idealist can't you and you know after a while you kind of realize that a lot of the time especially when it comes to resuscitation you know with most the majority of people you're almost trying to restart 
restart a, a broken car, a broken engine, if you like. And a lot of the time you don't get successful outcomes and that relationship with failure is so important. So, but then the general population this year, most people have had, it's been a complete upheaval to their routine and their you know, way of life. And um, yeah, it's, it's really tough. And I think, especially this time around now, um, you know, going out and seeing people, it's, you know, <laughs> the support from the public was overwhelming at times last year, especially during the, you know, the first wave and everything, um, you know, all the clapping, the free coffees. We, we don't, I don't think we do the job that we do for those reasons, do we? Um, I remember one night coming home from work and I, I cycled home from a shift and I just got back and uh, I was putting my bike away in the garden. I might have told you this. And um, and I, I completely forgot it was it was seven o'clock and I was just, yeah, put my bike in the sheds in the garden and all of a sudden I heard all this clapping at my front door and I could see all of my neighbours had gathered at my front door and we were all clapping. And, and I didn't really know what to do because what do you do? Do you just go to your front door and open your front door and sort of stand there like taking the ovation? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, so I just sort of hid in the garden <laughs> until everyone had stopped clapping. Um, but, you know, this time around, you know, it's, I think at that point, everyone kind of thought, you know it was all it was all kind of quite almost novel in a sense you know everyone was adjusting finding new ways of working exactly as you said but like now it's sustained isn't it and um you know everyone has some very very real very genuine um worries and concerns anxieties about things whether it's you know um related to their jobs related to um their own health and family things like that um and the fact that it's just winter and winter sucks like you know you're nodding your head mate but i know you're in egypt <laughs> every day in the sun <laughs> right life choices mate correct good life choices um you know the days are shorter the weather's rubbish you know this is always busy this time of year and and um it's just everywhere in the news isn't it it's inescapable at the moment um but it does also feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Um, but in the general population, people that we see, at, you know, that I've seen at work, um, yeah, just over it, I think, is the would be the, the term, the phrase that I'd use. The general consensus, absolutely. So, um, to to that point, Alec, mate, would you um, would you say you've seen sort of strains on the mental health of frontline staff, and and if so, just how have you seen that? Have you seen it on scene? Is it in the mess room? Is it is it just interacting them at ho- with with them at hospital? How how has that played out? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, and personally, it's I think it's one of the hardest things for me. It really is. Like, I kind of a big driver behind me wanting to do to, to work in critical care really was to um you know support, support the people that I work with like if I was to ask you what's the one thing that you miss working from working in London I, I know what you're going to say but what would you say <laughs> I would I would say um the one thing I miss is is working around my colleagues really just just with 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 and around some fantastic fantastic colleagues and and that's it, mate. And you know, I'm 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 exactly the same. And you know, being a team leader, I was team leader for five years, and I found it it was it was a incredibly humbling role a lot of the time. And you become 
people would confide in you and as, as, sort of as a part of the role you know you're there a big part of the reason that I wanted to do it and a, and a big part and a, you know a key part of the role is is supporting staff right um, and you deal with with uh, staff sickness um, people come to you with their problems and and I quickly learned that actually a lot of the time um, you know a lot of colleagues they had you know some really really significant stuff going on in their lives outside of work that I think when you're but before being team leader I was probably quite ignorant to and just never really found the time to consider that actually you know if that person's in a bit of a bad mood or is being a bit short with that patient you know like perhaps he's a he's a you know he's just a bit of a dick sort of thing but you don't really take into consideration the reasons behind that and the sort of you know like the the stuff that people have going on and and I, you know, I love the role in that sense because you get, uh, you know, very, very sort of tiny, you know, insignificant, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but if you can help people with their little problems, they might brew up for weeks. You know, someone who's undergoing cancer investigations or something like that, who won't have told their crewmate, might have told their crewmate, but nobody else knows about it, and they need this time off so they can go and do X, Y, and Z. And you know, they come to you with this problem, and it all kind of just spills out of them. And, you know, you can be that sounding board for them and just listen and then just do a couple of emails and, you know, sort out that shift for them and get that shift covered so they can have that time off and take that weight off their shoulders. You know, um, I found that an incredibly, you know, powerful sort of experience. I was quite young when I was doing the team leader role and I, I grew up a lot when I sort of learned more about, you know, these people that I work with every day, like the things that they're going through and yet they still would come into work every single day and they, you know, perform you know brilliantly doing things that most people could never even comprehend to be able to do and I guess that's what I like doing the APP role you know I like turning up and um seeing people at their best you know like it you know the holes of the Swiss cheese aligning I love that analogy so I really agree with you I think there is going to be a lot of personal reflection after after this this pandemic has passed um reflection self-reflection from a healthcare perspective reflection in general from 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 the public because they're that it's, it's it's touched everyone's lives and it tested everyone's income streams tested everyone's patience tested everyone's um perspectives but it really has i think like you said pushed a lot of healthcare professionals to to, to the limits yeah in terms of in terms of the workforce i think and that's probably you know a real a real key part of why um you know, I've been enjoying work at the moment and going in to be able to sort of um, take those complex decisions, as an APP, take those complex decisions off of people, you know. I've I felt the reception I've had from turning up to jobs is one of, you know, much more of relief. You can almost see the relief in people's faces through their, um, <laughs> through their PPE and their masks that here's someone who's hopefully going to turn up and just you know make a decision for them because they're at that point where they're just exhausted from being on ambulance all day so Alec could you just speak to the lack of personal agency that the lockdown has brought upon the general population and how sort of that's that might have affected the the general population yeah sure so um I remember we talked about this before it's I think the the lockdown and how everyone's felt really isolated from friends and family and you know we're all sort of uh, even now having doing this over zoom it's um you know in a lot of ways we're so fortunate like technology's got to the point where we're able to do this um it's kind of very 
very sort of it feels very familiar to how you know this 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 pandemic has been a you know a disease that's primarily affected the elderly. And I think it's really shown a spotlight on how um, ethically and morally we we view and look at the elderly, elderly people in society, um, whether they're in care homes, nursing homes, relatives. You know, we're all living further and further apart. Um, gone are the days when you live with your family in a in a small street. These lockdowns and this sort of isolation that we've all experienced makes me often think we're all having a little bit of a um, we're all living a bit of a bit of an example of how it must feel like to be to be in that situation. Um, you know, it's horrible not being able to go out and do the things that you normally want to do. And and hopefully, I hope one thing that comes out of this is we'll all be much more reflective about how how we want to sort of view the elderly in society. I guess. You, you, you're right um, by, um, <clears throat> by proxy, everyone has had to uh, isolate of sorts. And actually it's, it's almost a mini experiment in, in, in isolation. And, and, and also it's also a indicative of, like you said, what people must go through on a, on a daily and weekly basis when they truly don't have anyone. So I think from an empathy perspective, people could, can can hopefully extend more empathy to to those more vulnerable and and or isolated uh, in in society that 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 actually this is what they go through on a daily basis and hopefully uh, a, a net positive would be that there'd be more potentially more schemes to 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 buffer and to recorrect for, uh, some some of the social isolation that that, that that does occur. Everyone's spending more time on social media and there's some really interesting studies about how kids. Uh, um, you know, on on building relationships in real life the same way because of social media, and you know, it's just so much easier to have a conversation on WhatsApp rather than pick up the phone, or even better, go out and do it face to face. And <clears throat> you look at a lot of elderly people that have got dementia in a care home that we kind of just, you know, locked up and forgotten about to a degree. And it's kind of like all gone full circle, and now it's happening to us. And I think having that experience is uh, <clears throat> quite powerful in that sense because we get into feel what that's like and hopefully when we come out at the end of this it will raise a lot of questions about all that sort of stuff and how we want to sort of look after the elderly it's 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 almost inverted as well i heard a quote the other day that someone said about schools the schools being closed and um talking about personal agency and they said that it's really important for the schools to be open not just for the kids and obviously you know kids need a bit of school and all the benefits that that brings but also for parents, how important it is for parents to have a break and for their kids to be at school. And I, I sort of thought, how funny is that? That it's that, you know, I was like, how funny is that that they would see that it's the parents that need a break from their kids because of the stress and the pressure? Surely it's the parents that need a break from the stress and the pressure of everything else. You know, maybe furlough, automatically furlough all the parents so they can just invest all their time and energy in their kids, you know, but the automatic thing to sort of think is that they need a break from their kids there's going to be parents listening to this now being like that app said this <laughs> where does he live they're going to come and find him <laughs> i totally get it i've got a three-year-old it's tough um yeah. <laughs> although we are still at nursery from just talking about sort of self-care and how people take care of both themselves and the family are there any principles that you orchestrate um, around self-care that or indeed advocate um, to 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 others uh, that might be 
a clinician, sort of a doctor, paramedic, nurse listening to this that's going through an equally rough time. Remembering not to neglect that relationship between your physical health and your mental health. <clears throat> it's so important. And um, I think quite often when, you know, that's when I've been having a, a week where it's been enough, I've been doing loads of shifts, I've been doing a bit of overtime, whatever, and I'm just exhausted. There'll often be the times when I least want to go for a run or at least want to pick up the phone and talk to a friend. Like, and I just kind of can't be bothered. And I sort of have to remind myself that actually that's probably the time when I most need to just get out there and, you know, and do an exercise. It's you just, and it's, and it's not, it feels like this amazing thing that's amazing stress reliever. It's magic. How does it work? But actually when you look at the, the reasons behind it, um, you know, actually it makes complete sense. You know, if you, you go out for a run you can't, think about anything else um but it's the same for anything whether it's yoga or swimming i appreciate not many people going swimming at the moment i see the policy um cycling whatever it is it's just having that distraction to switch off your brain um and and looking after your physical health you know and eating well all that stuff it's so important um and you know like we were saying before talking to people having that conversation with with social creatures aren't we you know picking up the phone having a laugh um with a friend it's so important to, uh, um to get you through those sort of tough times and i guess doing the critical care stuff and coming out and seeing these patients you kind of have to disconnect from it whilst you're whilst you're doing these jobs you come out and see these people that are either you know horribly injured or really sick distressed families think about everything objectively disconnect yourself from from your your sort of your emotions your subconscious brain a little bit and just focus on the task that's in hand esther murray talks i think it's esther murray talks about it really nicely like being more like a child being you know children don't worry about the the future or the past they're very grounded in the present um i think there's so much to be said about that if you can if you can if you can be like that more often you you know you're less likely to occupy yourself with the, the what ifs and then you know doing some exercise you're distracting yourself you've got even less opportunity for your for your mind to sort of go on this negative feedback loop of oh what if i've done that or what if i could have done that you know i can think of a job actually um so a, a job a few years ago which was kind of the the, the, the pushing point to get me into uh working in critical care i guess I went out today, uh, I was an observer on a medic one shift with London Hems um, oh, years ago now. And uh, this was at a point when I hadn't been paramedic for very long and wanted to be, wanted to work in critical care, wanted to go and work on the helicopter, all this sort of stuff. And um, went out and did a observer shift, probably around the time you were on Hems actually. And um, the first job we went to um, was, it'll, it'll stay with me forever and I really hope it does. Um, we went to a cyclist who had been run over by a lorry and we got there really, really early on. So by the time we got there, um, she was she was still conscious, very aware of what was going on. Um, and she was sat in the road, propping herself up with her hands, you know, staring at us. She wasn't saying much, um, but from the waist up, she was absolutely fine, completely intact, not, an, not a scratch from the abdomen down just probably about the most terrific injuries you can imagine um and i know you've been to these patients you've seen these you know you've been to these sorts of jobs um she had uh, bilateral open femur fractures her pelvis was just you know a bag of bones just absolutely squashed and 
I think I'd never really, you spend all this time doing your training talking about catastrophic hemorrhage and then you see it for the first time and you're kind of like, oh wow, you know. And the um, the paramedic on the team and the doctor, um, the paramedic was a good mate, they kind of just like leapt into action and I was expecting to be very much sort of taking a back seat and observing and taking it all in, found myself quite early on, you know, helping out and doing bits. But I remember just watching them, work. And, the, and the doctor and the paramedic had never worked together before um, on shift, at least I don't think. And all their training kicked in and you could, it was just so slick. They just were able to just do all the things that they needed to do. And e even talking to her to the point where they were reassuring her that everything was going to be, everything was going to be all right. And it felt so, I don't know, I had this weird existential moment where I was kind of like taking everything in and looking at this poor woman who, you know, sat there, probably knew she was, she was, you know, she was going to die. Um, and yet they were still reassuring and still talking to her. And, you know, they attempted, attempted Reboa, she had blood. Um, and really early days Reboa, this was like 2014, and um, ended up being a thoracotomy, um, which is, you know, to go from one minute talking to a patient to full on open chest, cardiac massage, and all the rest of it. it was just, you know, we got to hospital and she survived, I think, 24 hours, but sadly, sadly died later. And I remember being sat at hospital after the job and I kind of thought, this, and this was two hours into the shift, two hours into the observer shift. And I remember being sat on the floor covered in blood, just thinking, if this is what this is like every day, there is no way I could do this. Like, this is way too much for me. And um, my mate, who was a paramedic on the shift, said to me, he was like, well, that was the most, you know, full on, full on job that I've done since being on secondment. And it was the, it was the perfect words that I needed to hear. Because, you know, that was obviously a huge job for him and the doctor as well. And, you know, and thinking about it now, of course it would be. But at the time, they very much made it feel like that was a, that was what they did. And that was an everyday sort of thing. And I came away from it sort of being, you know, like that was, that was horrendous. That was something that really, really sort of, you know, shook me, I guess. So, um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not I really want to sort of go into going to critical care. And, and I guess the one thing that kind of, you know, eventually I pushed me on to want to do it more was that, to think that people survive that is amazing. You know, that they can go through that sort of that process and that injury um, and come out the other end is incredible. But the fact that she didn't doesn't take anything away from it because, you know, I think if we were the best, they were the Hems team and, and everyone else in the scene were the, the best people there at that time to try and help her. Um, then, you know, that's, that's how it was. And she had, you know, the, the best sort of possible care that she could have had but it's still it just wasn't to be so I guess it's kind of that it's it's been for me at least anyway it's been just being accepting of the situation and being kind to yourself when things don't go you know now working in critical care and seeing this stuff not quite like that every day but you know seeing dealing with, with death I guess and um you know it's, it is for me at least having that kind of more that kind of attitude um and just being accepting of the situation so I was getting my next question actually, Alec, was going to be what has critical care taught you and under what's the pandemic taught you? But I think you've answered it actually, which is that general acceptance and that relationship with failure. And actually um, the, also something you said earlier, which was really profound, which is actually you can bring something to every situation, even if the outcome is, is, is bad. And to that point, 
you know, be it a relationship with uh, um, smoothing the relationship off in the group, the group cohesion um, with the pre-hospital team or the way you deliver a, a death notification or message, or indeed just the way that you maybe do some servant leadership and just chip in, get your hands dirty um, and, and really, really help the team. But there's always something, no matter how, how, what the outcome is, that you can bring to that scene. And I think that seeing through that lens, having that perspective is, is a fantastic one because it then enables you to, to, to purchase um, benefit from, from, from every clinical situation. Yeah, and you know, I said before, um, before giving you that, that, telling you that story, um, you know, I said, I hope I never forget it. And, and I mean it because it was such a powerful experience. And, you know, and as I said, to think that people can go through that and survive it, it's, um, you know, and she, she had, and I kind of think about what would have happened if we hadn't have been there, you know, she would have, you know, we were able to, they were able to put her to sleep, give her a general anesthetic at the roadside, you know, that's a very humane thing. And I think that's, you know, it's not a case of kind of, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. It's not, it's, it's, it's not thinking of things like that. It's as, exactly as you said, it's, it's, you know, bringing benefit in lots of different ways. I've got another one for you if you want really, really quickly. Um, to a few weeks ago, a patient who had COVID, who um, uh, I, got, I got called out to, Cruz were there resuscitating her. She's in her mid-30s, um, husband's in the living room, and they've got a little boy, an eight-year-old, and they're some of the toughest ones where there's, you know, child witness resuscitation or, or if it's, you know, it's a child, always the hardest ones, I think, for everyone. And... Um, by the time I turned up, the uh, the crews were 40 minutes into resuscitation and, you know, it was clear that it wasn't going to be a successful outcome. And um, I had that conversation early on with uh, everyone who was, who was involved um, and continued with the resuscitation, more so to buy us all a little bit of time just to think about how we were best going to have the conversation with the husband um, you know, with there being the, um, the young boy there as well. And this was right at the start of this wave. So when it was really, really busy <clears throat> and she'd been on well with COVID, um, and, you know, the husband had gone out to the pharmacy to get some bits for her to come back. And then she'd sort of suddenly stopped breathing. Um, and um, we had a, had a chat with, with everybody on scene and we, well, I kind of went in and I spoke to the husband. And I told him that, you know, we're probably going to be stopping resuscitation. And I let him come in and be with her at the moment when we turned off the, the Lucas, the, you know, the automated chest compression device, which does the compressions for us. And, and I think, you know, there's been lots of been lots of research, lots of evidence to say how important that is for closure, isn't it? For, I don't know if that's something that you always used to do. Every, every case is different, but, you know, I normally try and do that. I think it's good to help people have that closure brought the husband in um, at the point when we stopped, said all the, you know, the things that we would always sort of say that everything that we could have done had been being done, really reassured him that um, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, turned the machine off, gave him five minutes um, to sort of, you know, have that very normal, you know, expected reaction to that sudden sort of grief. Then we went back into the front room <clears throat> and some members from their sort of faith community had come around which was great and it was good to have them there who were able to sort of, um, you know, continue the sort of support. And I sat down with this boy who was eight 
and I was contemplating whether or not what the right thing to do was and whether or not I should bring him in as well you know it's his mum and in the context of Covid this might be the last opportunity he gets to to be with his mum and see his mum and I guess I sort of thought like you know we talk about best interest decisions and stuff and best interest isn't always what you think the right thing to do is but I think in this situation I tried to put myself in in you know in, in and try and think what would what would I want is you know what what do I think genuinely is the, is the right thing to do had a bit of a chat with some of the other some of the colleagues some of my colleagues and seen and um went back to him and asked him if he'd I, I sort of decided I was going to invite him into the room and I asked him I sort of like you know checked his I wanted to check his comprehension of the situation because it was all very sudden I sort of asked him and I wanted to you know and asked him if he understood what had happened to his mum and he was like oh you know Mum's died from mum's died from COVID. You know, my mum's died because of COVID. And I was like, okay, yeah, you know, he understands. Dad's really upset. They're both there. They're sort of, you know, but the, the kid's very, very sort of accepting of the situation. And I was like, do you want to come in and spend some time, spend some time with your mum? And again, I never know if this is the right thing or the the wrong wrong thing to do, but felt like the right thing at the time. So invited them both in. And they're both in there with mum. You know, we've tried to make a presentable and everything else. And the dad's just beside himself, you know, with with grief and crying. And the and the and that that sort of moment of hesitation, that moment of anxiety I had about whether or not it was the right decision, was just suddenly gone when the boy turned around to his dad and said, "Don't worry, dad. I'm here. I'll help you through everything else. I'm going to be here for you." And you know, I'm normally pretty good at sort of keeping my emotions, you know, a little sort of things when I'm on scene on a job, but that was one that really, really pulled at me. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is just, you know, this is so sort of, you know, very wholesome. And I just, um, I was really, really glad that I'd given them that moment and given them that time. <clears throat> and, you know, in 10 years ago, 15 years ago, attitudes would have been very different, wouldn't they? That sort of thing, I think. Um, but um, you know, talking about bringing stuff to to jobs, you know, that was something that I came away from that. And even though the outcome was really sad, you know, in a lot of ways, I think her her sort of fate was 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 done before we they'd even phone nine 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 in a lot of ways. But to be able to sort of give them that, I think, you know, that that was really stuff like that was really important to me. Um, or certainly, yeah, coming away from it, I felt positive. Could you speak to some of the unintended? positives that the that the pandemic has brought about Alec just uh, from from a personal perspective or indeed from your observations for me at least anyway I think really genuinely positives is um just surviving coming out the other end of it hopefully you know we're vaccinating loads of people um feels like there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel um and I'm you know I feel fortunate to still be here to be able to sort of tell the tale in a lot of ways um <clears throat> And I'm grateful for what I've got. You know, I feel very privileged to work with the group of people that I do. Um, you know, supportive family, all that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, I've got a really, you know, really uh, awesome group of mates that I'm really keen to hopefully have a beer with at some point. Um, I guess more generally, um, I think the first lockdown in a lot of ways started a bit of a revolution. All of these people, you know, people that works in the city often think of that you know get on the tube and a lot of them I think are thrown to themselves used to hate would probably hate getting the tube and pay as much money as they did for it and standing up on a cramped tube train for an hour dealing with all the delays and everything else 
and people get stuck in those cycles don't they you know they're very very sort of you know, that's just how things are and they just get on with it any kind of you know it's almost that that sort of sympathetic drive that fight or flight response you get when you're on difficult jobs and i think and it's pre-pandemic we used to see all these patients having you know huge anxiety levels you know lots of panic attacks all that sort of stuff um and it was all generally sort of this this population and the first lockdown kind of i feel like created a lot of it was a bit of a revolution in the sense that you know the general population of london the uk were given this opportunity to reconnect with all the things that they never had time for before the carpet was kind of pulled from under their feet and all these you know dreams and aspirations and things that people wanted to do whether it was go running more or you know take up i don't know doing things at home like painting or photography or whatever they were able it was a bit of an enabler in that sense wasn't it um you know i guess if, especially if you're furloughed um and i hope even now you know this wave is very very different you know everyone's exhausted and they just want to get through the end of it and return to some sort of return to some familiar form of normal but i don't know what your thoughts are i don't think there's going to be going back to a normal like there was before it's going to be a new a new kind of normal and i guess the one unintended positive that i really hope comes out of this is that it's afforded people the opportunity to reflect on the bigger issues that we're all facing and obviously you know there is nothing bigger than climate change um global warming and stuff like that and i hope we haven't lost sight of the much wider issues that we all face um, and you know we found a way out of this pandemic through incredible scientific achievement you know they've made a vaccine in next to no time at all that's that's unprecedented um, and the numbers that we're vaccinating um you know we, we pretty much solved homelessness overnight during the first wave um you know even being able to have these conversations now while we're you know all in lockdown you know we have all the knowledge and all the ability it kind of feels like why can't it be that simple um you know naively like to think we've all shifted back to a narrative of believing in science but i guess there's still a lot of work to do um in regards to sort of the, the wider issues you know um and there is none bigger than climate change i think you know uh we've all really got to come out of this and think about how we want to how we want to live what how we want to sort of how we want to be um alec listen i just want to thank you for your time today mate uh, just you as well because they've been hugely valuable both your stories and your anecdotal experience but also just your perspectives on on the on the wider uh, the wider shift and the, and the wider climate so um i really do thank you for uh, for, for just your time and your uh, your thoughts mate you're listening to the pre-hospital care podcast on the medics academy network 